welcome back to Kyle's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Tower Swallows Chapter 2. Uh, so this is the breaking of Siri again. Uh, and uh, we're going to be continuing with the breaking of Siri again for most of this book. Um, and this is basically taking every... Sapsowski is basically taking everything he's done. How Siri became a naive... Uh, you know, princess who is destined for greatness, broke her down in especially time of contempt, uh, made her lose everything, and then she tries in this, you know, toxic atmosphere to create a new life. A new life that uh, is flawed, toxic, miserable, but it's a life. He then breaks that down by slowly chiseling away everything, and you slowly see that she was never truly happy here. It was more of a defense mechanism and an attempt to stabilize her life. And the problem with, you know, a house of cards is one weak link, and it all falls down. And thus it does here. And so her safety, her shelter, is gone completely and utterly. Uh, she can't hide from what what happened. She can't hide from being broken. She's having to be broken again. She was, you know, she was a glass figurine shattered into a million pieces. And, and she slowly put this glass figurine back together, you know, gluing it. But there was like one piece missing. And the stress of that caused the, the glass the, the shatter again, effectively, for want of a metaphor. And so this is all about just showing the cracks in the rats and how they were never much of anything to her. It was a window dressing. It was an attempt to look better than and, and heal her wounds than uh, and, and not an actual you know, suture, effectively. We, uh, you know, the, this guy called Hotspurn comes up and, and starts talking to the rats, and he's, like, uh, a relatively professional criminal. Um, and we really see how the rats, you know, as presented in Time of Contempt and uh, most of Baptism of Fire, were presented as through the eyes of Siri. So they were um, these flamboyant... You know, very, very much, uh, you know, uh, steal from the rich and take for ourselves. Uh, inversion of Robin Hood type thing. They were the rebels, you know, uh, the, the, uh, against the machine. They were fighting the system, but they had no real, you know, impetus or agency. They had no through line. They had no statement. It was pure hedonism. Drink, fuck, kill. Do whatever you want, whenever you want. No one's there to tell you no. And, uh, you know, it's the classic uh, rebellion uh, that you see in a lot of uh, young kids where they want to fight something. They, 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 they believe the system is wrong and corrupt, but they don't have any way to fix it. So they rebel basically with nothing. They just say, ah, fuck the system. And that's it. That's the extent of their opinion. Uh, and this was especially relevant, you know, in the 80s in most of the Western world. Uh, you know, that was a big thing um, and predominated a lot of culture. 
back then, the countercultures of the 80s. And while Spakowski, you know, is writing this in the 90s, but began writing the short stories in the 80s and is from Poland, you know, a distinctly Eastern European country, uh, you know, a lot of that I ideals um, were still around and, you know, it's just a thing from you know, that time period. It's still a thing now, but less uh, prominent than it was in the 80s of, fuck the system. How are you going to fuck the system? I don't know. Drink. You know, it's it's completely directionless rebellion. It's rebellion without cause, you know, without purpose, without anything, with no statement. It is just pure hedonism. And when Hans Burton shows up, and he's an actual criminal, he's, he's, you know, he knows how to do this professionally, he sees them as rank amateurs. Like, he asked them to do a job, and they're like, oh, we didn't get around to it. You know, instead we spent all this time drinking and having fun. And he's like, are you serious? And then, like, in, uh, you know, when, when they're uh, terrorizing the place, you know, um, it, it, it's terror that a 10-year-old thinks of, not not a competent criminal. Uh, you know, uh, good criminals, criminals who understand the power of terror and fear, understand that uh, it comes from not just brute force, but from mind games and from acting kind sometimes, but then switching on a dime. They don't understand that. So they just killed some random guy and because they were ruining the, the vibe, you know, um, and then it, it's directionless, pure hedonism. And, you know, they're all getting tattoos and Missile and Siri are getting matching tattoos of the, the, the rose on their inner thigh area. And, uh, you know, it, you know, uh, Hothburn says, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. It'll be a great way for them to identify your corpses. You know, they're not thinking about the implications of anything. It's just the here and now. That's all that matters. And the here and now is, you know, fun. It's not about anything. It's not wanting anything. Just pure fun and fun for them is incredibly fucked up but also to any actual criminal is directionless and stupid uh and he even points out in in this you know Hansburn is ultimately you know working for Bonhart in a way to get you know to set them into a trap but he is attempting in, in a way to warn them in his own weird way um, he talks about the amnesty, and the amnesty is very similar to what the British Empire did with the pirates in the South uh, when uh, they were trying to, you know, restore law and order to the Caribbean. That area uh, was so lawless that the pirates came in, set up the Republic of Pirates in the South, uh, and basically the the British Empire, in order to get rid of it, basically issued a blanket, you know, amnesty. You will be forgiven for all your crimes if you do this. But it did come with a caveat. They asked a lot of them to become pirate hunters, much like here where it suggested that maybe the amnesty, uh, you'll be forced into service in the army because there's a war on. And, uh, you know, quid pro quo in a way. 
And so that's the historical parallel. And it makes sense, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot of the the situation in the South with the British Empire was to the fact that uh, they, they had recently went to war with Spain. They were trying to clean up their image. Um, and, it, you know, it was all about finances more than it was anything else. They were content to let the pirates be there for quite some time. They could have done something, but they didn't. Uh, until much later. And here, you know, Nilfgaard is in, currently at war with the Northern Kingdoms. Uh, you know, Amir is getting married to fake Siri. And so things need to look good. Uh, all is quiet on the Western Front, as you will. Um, so that, uh, you know, it, the Empire feels more in control than it actually is. It's all about appearances. He warns them, you know, Bonhart's in jealousy. He's not too far away from us. He can come at you at any time. And, of course, this is a trap because he knows they're, they're kids. They're amateurs. They're hedonistic. They're idiots. They're going to follow right through because they think that this amazing, well-renowned bounty hunter who is, you know, rarely ever lost, took out one of the most fearsome gangs, and as hinted at, has fought witchers before, uh, during the confrontation between him and Siri. This is a legend of bounty hunters. You, you don't take him on. And they're like, oh, we can. We're better than everyone else. And, of course, it's a trap. But he does say it in a way, and there's this implication that maybe you shouldn't. He has, you know, he, he knows that they're idiots. He knows that they're kids. He knows that they're amateurs. But there's this sense that, you know, he wants them to maybe grow up uh, and, uh, and, and become part of a larger criminal empire. As it is, they, they take orders from other, uh, other gangs. And uh, Siri begins to see that the cracks in the Lorance, that they aren't this free, uh, you know, you know, group of doing whatever you want. There is that to an extent, but when they're on a job to get money, you know, they can only do certain things. It's because they are, at the end of the day, tools, just like she was when she was a princess or, uh, you know, the rest of her life. This isn't real freedom. It's the illusion of freedom. And so Hotspur's sort of trap is uh, is kind of implied to potentially be him saying grow the fuck up and realize how stupid this is but also knowing that they're heading into a trap and you know they're most likely not going to grow up and i think that's an interesting way to play it instead of like the, the traditional cackling villain who get, get, gets the, beep, the 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 heroes into a trap and and laughs maniacally he is kind of saying hey you know, this is a stupid move, maybe you shouldn't do it, uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, he knows that they're not going to listen. As it is, when he tells him, Bonhart's only uh, a day away or so from you, you better get the fuck out of here, they decide, we're going to get drunk tonight, and then we're going to head out and take him on personally. Because they're that stupid. They are kids. And kids don't think this way. You know, they don't think smartly. They don't think like professionals. They're all about emotion. And emotion 
uh, can is a good thing, but can also get you horribly, horribly ruined if you don't think about things with a grain of salt. And these these kids who are the children of contempt, the children who are just lost to the world and only believe in their freedom and that their being is worth more than everyone else's, you know, that leaves them in a, a situation where they will inevitably die. Because they do. He, Hotsburn even points out there are at least three different parties after them. Not counting Bonhart. What are you, stupid? Um, and guess what? They are. Because they are, as established in Time of Contempt, they are pure emotional beings. They're pure hedonism. You know, rape, pillage, kill, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. And that kind of thinking won't get you anywhere in a criminal enterprise because a criminal enterprise is ultimately a job and has to be done in certain ways that work. The the most well-known criminals are often the failures because they let that get to them. You know, Al Capone, one of the most famous gangsters of all time, he did ran uh, run a, a pretty big racket for a time, but he wasn't as big as some of his other people, uh, some of his other contemporaries at the time. Many people thought he was being stupid, and he liked the limelight, and that all led to his downfall. You know, it's a good criminal is one you've never heard of. The the bit with Hotspur and Siri. Get his name. His name is not subtle. It's Fukowski laughing at us. Hotspurn. Get it? Get it? A attraction that has been spurned. An attraction that, you know, that has been refused. Get it? Get it? Um, and so Siri is in this weird position where she basically has had you know, uh, her past thrown right back at her. She's heard about Amira getting married to her, but it's not really her. She's uh, she's hearing all about, you know, what happened to Sintra, uh, and, you know, it, it's basically her past has caught up with her. She can't hide it anymore. So she heads out in a stupid move that she admits to Visigoda in the framing that was stupid. She wants to reclaim her inheritance. Uh, and she, in a way, realizes that this house of cards, the shelter she has built for herself with the rats, is unsustainable and will collapse. So if she can get out from underfoot and stop the crisis from happening, she may be able to stabilize the house of cards. Not realistic at all, but she's a kid, and she's been living with the rats for so long that this is the way she thinks. And so... She does it, and it makes the House of Cards crumble even faster. And with Huntsburn, he is a lech, um, possibly pedophilic, homophobic, and is an all-around asshole, but he's manipulating her. He knows that she finds uh, vagrant displays of authority and power, you know, in some form attractive, he knows that, uh, you know, she wants his horse, and she, he knows that she's curious. And so he plays on that, and uh, the way he talks to her is very mansplainy, uh, very much a, you know, you, you women don't understand. And even her entire relationship with Missile he finds abhorrent, uh, which, I mean, 
it is, but not in the way he thinks. He thinks it's abhorrent because it's a woman and a woman in a relationship. It's not about that. It's about the fact that it is a Stockholm Syndrome relationship built on rape. But it's all about ego with him. And so he plays on that and manipulates Siri. And when... Uh, you know, when they're attacked and he's going to die and he basically, you know, coerces her into a sexual encounter, um, it's built entirely on curiosity. She has been so fucked in the head by the rats that she thinks that this is normal. Hell, during the entire time that he's lecching on her, even in the presence of the other rats... She thinks it's a bit creepy, but doesn't really act the way anybody normally would, because, you know, in the rats, you take what you want. That includes raping people, uh, as we well know. So, to her, it's a normal thing. And so it's so fucked up that it is a... It, you know, it's, it's simultaneously her own curiosity, her own hormonal urges, with her own uh, fucked up mental state. You know, and it's all colliding in this one moment. And there's a nice bit of black comedy when he dies, you know, in the midst of this sexual encounter and she has to sleep next to his corpse to continue the hide. It also adds on to a thing that um, Milva from last book, uh, we found out about her pregnancy, uh, came from uh, a Scoia'tael unit that, uh, you know, they, they thought they were all going to die, and so effectively there was, um, you know, the last rites orgy, effectively, that there, that this was the only way to relieve their feelings. Sex in, you know, you know, in the face of death, life in the face of death, is something so counterintuitive, but also in the weird fucked up way human brains work and the way human emotion works makes sense, but is really, 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 really hard to tackle. Um, because sex in a, in of itself is, you know, we are pre-programmed are on a biological level to procreate, to continue on our legacy. Um, and so, um, with the exception of a rare few uh, who are born with different sexualities, this isn't an eight- part of our biology. We are basically automatons in this. We are forced along this road. And in the face of death, life brings us hope in this really weird way. It took a long time for me to grapple with this idea. Uh, I remember when I first read Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, uh, the reaction to so many dead in the final issue by two of the characters, Laurie and Dan, is to sleep together. And I thought that was abhorrent and disgusting, um, but after discussions with, uh, you know, older people, including my parents, my grandparents, one of which is a psychologist, you know, um, I really came to understand that in the human mind, in the face of death, life must go on. And so sex is simultaneously a personal fulfillment, but also on a biological level, is meant for procreation, even though that's not its only purpose. Uh, but, you know, on a biological level, that's the way we think of. So it's life in the face of death. And so all of this, you know, is playing into the comedy of the scene that he dies in the midway through it. And it's just kind of amusing. Um, it's fucked up, but also hilarious. 
And that, I think, really sets in tone, you know, the way Siri is thinking right now. She is a mess of emotions, mess of ideas, you know, just incoherent in many ways. And so some of these situations are dark and fucked up, and at other points it's hilarious, but it can be both at the same time. Because this is her world now. This is what she's going through. It's teenage angst mixed up with fantasy nonsense. Mixed up with some really fucked up trauma. To the point that the world around her is almost comedic. And dark. And fucked up. And incoherent. And that's this is one way in which Sapkowski really delivers that to the audience and says, here, this is what she's going through. This is how fucked up it is. And from an outsider's perspective, someone sitting down reading a book, it's, it's hilarious. But to her, it's very much the real thing. And, you know, it's only funny in hindsight. Uh, so it's a nice bit of dark comedy. Um, so... She gets Kelpie, uh, so now we got the origins of, uh, in this one chapter, you know, from his setup in the framing device of last chapter, you know, we get, uh, we get the origins of her getting Kelpie, her black horse, uh, which she also, you know, asked for in the fortune teller extract, if you remember, and her tattoo, and, uh, the tattoo within of itself, you know, it's the byproduct of that Stockholm Syndrome relationship. I've already talked about how fucked up that relationship is, and it's now over because Missile is dead. But yeah, you know, is the real, you know, if you didn't get it, here's a sledgehammer to the face. This is a fucked up relationship. Now, the Bonhart stuff. The Bonhart dealing with the rat sticks in my head because the way he does it is so gruesome and matter of fact. You know, to Bonhart, these kids are nothing. They're toys. And he's not really there for them. I mean, he plans on, you know, taking the bounty for the entire gang from the Von Hagens, but he's really, you know, his main purpose is for the, the contract on Siri that he has other plans for, which we'll get into later. And so he toys with them because Siri isn't there. So he's just messing around. They're nothing to him. He takes them out slowly, methodically. A cat playing with his food. And then Siri shows up. And he kills Missile. He basically holds off killing Missile until Siri shows up. And then he murders Missile. And then he takes on Siri. And the way Spikowski does it, it's entirely from Siri's perspective. And so we're, we're getting like this, you know, rush of, you know, endorphins, you know, adrenaline. She, she's going to fight the big bad and win. She's going to be the heroic, you know, guy and, you know, beat everyone. And she's going to be totally awesome. No. You know, she remembers her time at Caramore and she remembers the move. She recites it. She goes, yep, that's how I do it. This, 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 and this. And we're greeted with this big heroic passage as she, you know, mimics the pendulum exactly, and Bonhart blocks it. Just parries it right out. It was nothing to him. You know, it's implied, and it will become clearer in later, uh, but he's fought witchers before. He knows how that works. He knows all about the sleight of hand and the, you know, the, the, the choreography of a witcher's battle. It's nothing to him. And he wins, you know, and he humiliates her. 
he takes her and shoves her into you know the the soon to be dead missile and they're like this is what death is it's not pretty it's not glorious it's not you know last man standing heroic defeat this is what death is shit and piss and blood right there congealing and he forces her to watch missile's last breath and then he shoves her into that mess and says that's what death is Death is not heroic, it's not nice, it's not, you know, grand gestures, it's this. Shit. He then, casually, methodically, like a professional butcher of meat, like a professional cook, explaining to you how he cooks his and prepares his meat. He ties up Siri, forces servants to hold her by the hair and pry open her eyes, you know, asks for vinegar and salt and a saw, and takes each corpse of the rats and saws off their head, slowly, methodically, talking through each detail. You know, you don't want to spoil it. You know, you got to make sure it's preserved. He talks like a professional cook or a professional butcher of meat. A, you know, someone you could walk, you know, talk to at a normal grocery store. But he's doing it to children. Bonhart is one seriously fucked up villain in the way that he is the embodiment of an uncaring universe. A universe that has no remorse, no need to sugarcoat things. He will show you the deepest bottomless pit of misery because that's what life is, especially the Siri. She's had nothing but misery. And she tried to claw together a, you know, a house of cards, a shelter uh, in which it was all about hedonism and freedom and doing whatever you want, and it crumbled. And now she's in the hands of someone who embodies everything she was running away from. The lack of choice, the lack of care, just pure, unbridled misery. And that's where we leave things off. I adore how Sapkowski takes everything he's done with Siri and embodies it in Bonhart and slaughters the rats. This is all about Siri's dark path that she made as a defense mechanism being torn down one by one by one. She has nothing now, and she still has nothing. And this is where she's at. He also does a clever thing in the framing device where there's a break at one point where they need to take a nap. And I thought that was cute. But also that she can't tell this story. It hurts. Um, he, he does this in a way where, you know, he gives the explanation of why this town is called Jealousy. That's not its original name. Its name comes from a legend, blah, 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 blah. But it really sells that the, the oral tradition of this story, that this is a story being told by Siri to Visigoda. Um, it is a story told over a fire. And so as the details become more gruesome, Siri becomes more despondent and more aloof to the point she breaks down. She breaks down then when she sees her friends being, you know, vandalized and butchered. And she breaks down now in the hands of Visigoda, just trying to explain things. 
She can't handle it. Her life has been nothing but shit and misery. This is what destiny does to people. It's not good. It's not heroic. It's not grand fantasy. It's hell. This is, along with time of contempt breaking and baptism of fire's complacency in her misery, really shows you that traditional fantasy stories of chosen ones are fucked up. And if you think it's heroic or nice, you don't pay attention to the implications. This is an inversion of everything fantasy stands for, and it is glorious. That is the power of Witcher. What a chapter. Just pure, unadulterated misery. That's Witcher in a nutshell. See you next time. Bye.